This is Frank Morano on the other side of midnight on 77 WABC. Well, the Supreme Court has always been controversial. When it comes to the subject of abortion, the Supreme Court, at least for the last half century or so, has always been super controversial. But if it was possible to put that level of controversy on steroids, it has been done in the aftermath of this leaked decision that just might overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, as you have uh, Americans trying to understand the implications of this, as you have lawyers everywhere wondering what the legal and political implications of this are, is there any place where it is more important to have a robust discussion on what's happening in the Supreme Court than in America's academies of higher learning? Well, unfortunately, it seems like so often What's going on at some of our elite universities actually is the opposite of free speech and promoting discussion. Somebody that has been uh, not only a very distinguished legal scholar, but a warrior in the cause of promoting free speech and promoting honest dialogue and honest debate about this has been Ilya Shapiro. He's the executive director and senior lecturer at the Georgetown University Center for the Constitution. He's also uh, the author of the book Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Mr. Shapiro, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good to be with you. I haven't had the opportunity to read your book yet, uh, although I've ordered it and I'm looking forward to reading it. But just give folks uh, a primer and hopefully we can have a a more detailed discussion after I've actually read the book. Give folks a primer on what's wrong with judicial nominations these days and uh, how has the high court become so politicized? Is this just a recent phenomenon or has this always been a problem? Well, it's it's good that you're talking about the book now because it's coming out. In paperback, if you've ordered it, uh, maybe you ordered the hardcover. I've updated it for the paperback release July 5th. Um, so all the latest uh, developments with, uh, with uh, Judge, soon to be Justice Jackson, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, and, and so forth. Um, but the, the thing is, politics has been part of the nomination confirmation process from the very beginning. George Washington had a chief justice nominee rejected by the Senate for political reasons. And it's gone on and on. Everything you can imagine uh, to happen, given that the president and senators have always been politicians, has happened. Now, in the modern day, the way politics plays a role is different. The uh, intersection of judicial philosophy, uh, the, uh, the polarization of the parties, and in fact, the ideological sorting of the parties. That is, what you have now is a powerful court, so each seat is very important, and divergent interpretive methods that map onto partisan preference at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted and polarized than at least the Civil War, if not uh, ever. And so, of course, there's going to be this cataclysmic battle any time that there's a vacancy in, in one of these states. Uh, for the record, I did order a hard copy of the book, but it was a used hard copy, so it was a little less expensive. All right. <laughs> so, all right. Hopefully that doesn't affect your uh, your royalty payments too much. I have to ask you about uh, a subject that I spoke about on this show back in January and February, which I found uh, pretty concerning. And I know you're at Georgetown now, so I'm guessing the story had a happy ending. But when I was promoting your appearance today, several listeners were reminding me to ask you about this. 
Back in January, you were placed on administrative leave for some tweets about President Biden's Supreme Court pick, namely uh, being uh, kind of critical of President Biden's pledge to appoint a woman of color. I'm wondering if you can explain the controversy here. And because you are at Georgetown these days, does this mean that the process played out as it should? Well, actually, there, there is no uh, ending yet, uh, happy or otherwise. I'm still on paid administrative leave. The uh, the so-called investigation is is ongoing. I think it's day uh, 114 now. Uh, we're approaching the end of the, the fourth month because I was onboarded February 1st and immediately placed on leave. I don't know if that's ever happened before. It's an unusual situation. Um so here's what happened. Yeah, but a few days before I was supposed to join uh, Georgetown, uh, uh, leaving Cato after 15 years there as the, the head of their Constitutional Studies Center, uh, when news leaked of Justice Breyer's retirement, this was uh, a month before Justice uh, before uh, Judge Jackson was nominated, um, uh, and, and uh, President Biden reiterated his pledge from his campaign that he would appoint a black woman. And uh, that didn't sit well with me. I thought that uh, it's not good to limit a pool of candidates by, by race and gender. Uh, and so later that night, having done some media and done some writing, uh, I was on the road. I had been at home. This wouldn't have happened because I, I wouldn't be doom scrolling Twitter in my hotel room late <laughs> at night. But uh, I, I felt the urge on Twitter and, you know, it's a bad idea to tweet late at night. Uh, and, I, and I said that, uh, you know, I'm an expert on this stuff. I think the best choice for a Democratic president uh, would be Sri Srinivasan, who's uh, an Indian-American, uh, uh, the chief judge of the D.C. Circuit, very well regarded, was on the short list for the uh, the pick under Obama that ended up going to Merrick Garland. Uh, but anyway, um, I, you know, given that, the operation of logic means that everyone else, in my mind, is less qualified. Now, you know, it's a parlor game who you think the very best pick is, but regardless, uh, I phrased that poorly uh, because, uh, you know, President Obama uh, said that it would be, be limited to the black women. And so I said that, uh, you know, given that uh, uh, Srinivasan and everybody else is disqualified given the latest uh, hierarchy of intersectionality, I said that we will be left with a, quote, lesser black woman. I meant less qualified. Everybody else would be less qualified. But that's what... Uh, Raised a firestorm first on Twitter and then in the real world. Uh, and, uh, yeah, uh, nearly four months later, here we still are. Um, you know, the, the, the cynics kind of speculating about this stuff uh, said that uh, they're waiting for the students to get off campus um, to, to quietly reinstate me. We'll see. Commencement happened this past Sunday. So, you know, maybe the dean's about to call me. Well, you know, I guess you'd much rather be, be on paid administrative leave than unpaid leave. I know that's my kind of leave, but it's a shame, uh, one, that you can't even tweet, uh, you know, something that might even have been a poorly worded tweet without having it affect your job when this has nothing to do with uh, what you would have been doing at Georgetown. I mean, what does that say about where we are in terms of uh, silencing free speech and free discussion in academia these days? Yeah, clearly what's going on is that because my perspective was not the dominant one in academia, not from the left, not progressive, 
uh, people glommed on to and my, my inartful phrasing, which I've uh, readily admitted and took down the tweet uh, right away, uh, uh, but, you know, didn't shy away from my underlying message. And indeed, 76% of Americans in a poll by uh, ABC News, not some you know, rabid right-wing outlet, uh, agreed that Biden should have uh, you know, considered every candidate, not limited to school in that way. He would have been better off just saying, I'm going to you know, look far and wide, eventually picked uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, said this is the best person, and, right. and, and gone with it. But um, that's, not, that's not what happened. But, yeah, as I've discovered, um, there's just the, the Overton window, what's called the permissible range of policy views on certain issues is rather narrow in academia, certainly affirmative action, abortion are some of those areas. Um, I had, I've never been protested in, in more than a thousand public speaking events until one uh, that I had at the beginning of March in, uh, in UC Hastings, the law school in, in San Francisco, where the event was completely shut down by yelling and screaming and pounding and what have you. And I've, I've been pretty busy during this paid leave. I've been giving a lot of speeches uh, at, at law schools and, and to lawyer groups and otherwise. I've been writing and, and otherwise try to make you know, productive use uh, of the time. Uh, but it, one thing has, has definitely uh, come out, and my event at, at Hastings is by no means uh, the only such disruption. You might have, your, your listeners might have heard of uh, what happened at Yale Law School later that uh, March 2022. Uh, there was a protest at, at Michigan. This stuff is spreading, and it's just uh, an unwillingness to, to hear the other side. Uh, the, the idea that uh, uh, ideas that offend you are, are harmful and should not be permitted. Um, the lack of grace in, in public discourse more broadly, seeing your political enemies as evil rather than just wrong, and, and not challenging them but canceling them instead. Uh, and I, I'm fortunate to have uh, a bit of a platform, a bit of a name and a brand. And I've, uh, during this time, I've published in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post. I just had an op-ed come out today in the Washington Examiner about gun policy with, mm-hmm. with uh, this week's tragic shooting and all that. Uh, but so, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm still marginalized at the law school, and, uh, and my, my status is still uh, up in the air, which is un- unsettling. Uh, but this idea of cancel culture that affects people that don't have uh, the network and resources and reach that, that, that I've had, let alone kind of just average people who uh, make a, a small donation to a, a politically incorrect cause and get doxxed and boycotted, fired uh, in Canada, frozen out of their bank accounts. So this is a really... Uh, unhealthy development in our public discourse writ large. Well, the the thing that I really gave Georgetown credit for bringing someone like you on board, uh, sort of a, a right of center legal scholar, because it said to me that they wanted law students at Georgetown to be able to hear expert legal perspectives from across the ideological legal spectrum. And uh, they couldn't have been surprised when you voiced a little bit of concern, albeit maybe a little snarkily, uh, to uh, President Biden's decision to 
pick someone with the determining factor being their race and their uh, their gender. But uh, we're wishing you the best of luck. And uh, and you're right. There's a lot of folks that don't have your celebrity and your uh, kind of safety net that are really being tormented by this. And I, I hate to use the term cancel culture because I think it's one of those things that gets used far too often to apply to everything that whoever's being uh, canceled or marginalized in some way may not like. But in my view, this is the very definition of what cancel culture is. So we're wishing you the best of luck. Well, thanks. I mean, the, the, my, my job was not subject to uh, a vote of the faculty. I'm not sure I would have been hired if that had been the case. It's not tenure track. It's, it's uh, partly, uh, as, as the title implies, executive director. It's partly administrative, partly teaching, uh, uh, prom- promoting originalism outside the academy, Kind of straddling the legal, political, academic, and, and media world, somewhat like I was doing at, at Cato before for nearly 15 years, but just with more of an academic focus. Uh, and uh, we'll see where this uh, turns out. Uh, this wasn't necessarily the way I was planning my career transition, but uh, um, uh, certain opportunities have presented themselves, and I, I'm certainly not going to uh, back down or... Um, or, or apologize from, from views that diverge from um, uh, what, what the, the, the right. orthodoxy in, in academia. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Ilya Shapiro. He's the author of the book Supreme Disorder, uh, coming in paperback. Or if you go on Amazon, you could still get a pretty good deal on a used hard copy version as well. All right, let me get your take on the story that everybody's been talking about. Uh, that is the draft opinion that was leaked by um, someone uh, with respect to the opinion written by Justice Alito, which seems to overturn Roe versus Wade. Before we discuss the leak itself, did you um, I know that you had an opportunity to read the draft of the opinion. What did you think of uh, Justice Alito's reasoning? And do you think it's sound? Well, it's it's about what you would have expected coming after oral argument. Um, Oral argument itself was surprising because Before that, the conventional wisdom uh, that I certainly shared was that John Roberts, probably with uh, Justice Kavanaugh, would forge some compromise to incrementally uh, push back, uh, allow more regulations, including this Mississippi law that bans abortion past 15 weeks, but not necessarily overturn Roe versus Wade. At oral argument, it seemed like nobody had an appetite uh, for that compromise other than John Roberts and both parties. Both Mississippi and the uh, uh, the, the the abortion clinic um, in, in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, their lawyers uh, said no. There has to be all or nothing. There's no compromise that's possible, which I think is an intellectually honest position. And and so what you get is is this this draft, this leak draft, uh, reflects I think what people were expecting. Now it's not really an originalist opinion, meaning uh, grappling with the. Uh, understanding of the uh, the original public meaning of the 14th Amendment uh, ratified after the Civil War to protect uh, what are known as unenumerated rights, that is, the rights that we all retain that aren't listed uh, in uh, the Bill of Rights. It's built on previous jurisprudence about uh, the nature of what's called substantive due process, um, as Alito put it, rights that are deeply rooted in our nation's histories and traditions and, and found that abortion was not uh, one of those. So it kind of followed on the existing jurisprudence, said that Roe was unworkable, has produced confusion, has continued uh, not to be accepted by society, unlike other things, uh, whether it's gay marriage or 
or, or drug use or d- different controversies that have come before the court, uh, interracial marriage for that matter, uh, contraception use, all of these things, public opinion went in one direction uh, over the last decade. But uh, on this issue, it's, 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 still, it's still divided. And so, um, uh, yeah, a few surprises, really. Uh, it was uh, still breath, uh, breathtaking to, to see something like that uh, in print uh, and uh, probably was breathtaking for whoever the leaker was, uh, whether the goal was, as is more likely from the left, to try to uh, uh, move one of the justices in the majority over, or uh, still possible, but less likely, someone on the right looking to lock in one of those justices mm. in the majority. Uh, so uh, it doesn't sound like the kind of opinion that you would have written had you been on the court, but it sounds like an opinion that you don't necessarily find too objectionable. Do I, do I have it right? Yeah, I think, I think that there should be a, a more originalist concurrence from a Justice Thomas joined by Justice Gorsuch, maybe maybe Barrett or Kavanaugh as well. I don't know, uh, but uh, Alito uh, is—he is, calls himself an originalist in, in some sense, uh, but he does like to build on previous uh, precedent and analyze previous jurisprudence. And so, uh, right, it's you know, uh, I, I think it achieves the the constitutionally proper result as a lot of. Uh, liberal 50 years ago criticized Roe for being, you know, made up of the whole cloth and kind of prematurely uh, stopping the political debate in the country. Justice Ginsburg, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, made that criticism. Um, I, I agree with that. Uh, and so to, to return it back to the states and let it let the political process work out and different states can come up with different solutions, I think that's ultimately a, a healthier result for both our politics uh, uh, and our law. Now, let's talk about the leak itself. A lot of folks, not only folks associated with the court, uh, like Justice Thomas and others, but a lot of legal observers, a lot of legal pundits, have described the impact that this leak has on the reputation and the credibility of the court as just being devastating. Is that a view that you share? Yes. Um, I had a couple of pieces out last week, one on Fox News and and one in uh, Newsweek, talking about how this is the biggest attack on the court's operation, on the court's uh, legitimacy, probably probably ever. We've, we've never had a leak of a full draft. Roe v. Wade itself, the result was leaked, uh, I think, to Time magazine a few days before. But to have this, this draft uh, come out, it's, it's unprecedented. And it generated, you know, protests at the court, protests, in front of the justice home, justices' homes, uh, which is really uh, unsettling. You kind of have uh, indications of mob rule and a, a breakdown in, in civil order in that, in that respect. Um, and I hope that the investigation that the Chief Justice has asked the, the Supreme Court Marshal uh, to conduct, and which is ongoing now in its third week, that it uh, is thorough, meaning examining the texts and emails and cell phone records of the clerks and the spouses and the justices themselves, anybody in the staff that would have had access to this opinion, because I think it's really important uh, that this gets uh, nipped in the bud uh, and that whoever did it, again, if it's a justice, uh, which I doubt, but that it would be an impeachable offense, I think. And if it's a clerk, then that's the end of their, of their legal career, although they might be thinking that they're going to become a, you know, an activist celebrity of, uh, of some sort. But yes, this is, as we've seen, the, the, the turmoil in the country 
over the last few weeks. It really is um, uh, something that, that, that's shaken confidence in our institutions. And um, the the thing that I wonder, though, is, you know, we've seen leaks repeatedly from the executive branch and the legislative branch, including on very high level sensitive material, classified information, national security information, detailed uh, private meetings between heads of state, information about uh, uh, warrantless wiretapping programs, all sorts of things. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I wonder if the silver lining in this Supreme Court leak is that we see that the individuals, both the staff and the justices and the judges that make up the judicial branch are just as flawed as the people in the other two branches. And that maybe it's not the worst idea to subject them to the same sorts of restrictions or guidelines that the other two branches, for instance, um, you know, putting federal trials, even Supreme Court arguments on camera and not deferring to the Supreme Court in nullifying uh, legislation that was enacted by the other two branches. Does that argument make any sense to you? Well, there's a lot there. Um, Certainly, judges and justices are are human beings, uh, no less than than politicians. But but that's not the point. The way that courts operate as institutions uh, is different than they're supposed to be different than the political branches. The engaging in the rule of law, judicial decision-making is different than kind of political log-rolling and compromises uh, uh, that, 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 that uh, Congress is supposed to make or, or the sort of uh, you know, executive activity coming from the White House and, and administrative agencies. These are different processes that these actors are, are engaging in. Now, certainly if there's a leak of classified or national security uh, material that's tremendously serious. That's against the law. It's, it's not clear that uh, that this leak is is criminal. Um, it depends how exactly the leak was done, um, the, how the uh, potentially the statutes apply. That's an open question. So it's not a much as much a matter of, of of national security or criminal law, but it's a it's a difference. It, it impedes the operation of the institution. If the justices can't uh, send each other emails or uh, print out copies of this, or you know, they, they have to meet in person and and uh, uh, shred every draft that that ever gets printed. That you know, it it really hinders the the confidence among the, the clerks and the justices mm. and how how courts are supposed to uh, operate. Cameras in the courtroom are a completely different issue. Um, I you know, some trials and uh, appellate arguments are broadcast or available for viewing uh, live stream. Uh, at the Supreme Court, I'm, I'm not yet convinced that that would, uh, what problem exactly that would be solving. We have had um, uh, live uh, streamed arguments during COVID, and that's continued since audiences aren't allowed into the court. Whenever there's oral argument, you can listen in uh, uh, live to that going on. I don't know what cameras would add, what benefit they would add that, that's greater than kind of the cost to um, uh, snippets being taken out of context or lawyers and justices' behavior being affected by the knowledge that this is, uh, you know, being uh, broadcast live. So I don't think it would, re- you know, more transparency isn't always good. The most effective committees on in Congress on Capitol Hill, for example, are the closed-door uh, intelligence committees uh, rather than the kind of the, the, the regular ones, which are all just, you know, I've testified before them. It's kabuki he- theater and nothing Nothing really goes on. So that's 
you know, it's a separate issue how much transparency the court needs or what kind of ethics rules they need for that matter. I know I don't think the justices are, are ethically compromised. For that matter, I don't, you know, if they own $1,000 of stock of, of some kind, I don't think that's going to convince them to rule for, for that particular party. I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned about those sorts of issues. But anything that attacks uh, the public's confidence in the integrity of the court uh, and makes the judges look like they are just politicians in robes, that is uh, what's dangerous. Because the Supreme Court has always had uh, bigger uh, public confidence than, uh, than any other federal institution short of the military. And if that's chipped away, then, um, you know, we're, we're, we're even in a worse state than, than this toxic public discourse that we were discussing mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. Two quick things I just want to ask you. One, on the subject of originalism, which you've now mentioned a few times, you know, it's easy to understand, and for people that don't necessarily follow uh, constitutional analysis or the Supreme Court discussions that closely, originalism, and I realize I'm oversimplifying it here, is that justices should and judges should interpret the Constitution and laws as written and not insert um, all sorts of other things into it, including their own personal biases. Now, it's easy to understand where that comes in on something like there being 100 senators. It says very clearly there's two senators for every state. There's 50 states. So if, if Congress tried to pass a law saying we're only going to have we're going to have 110 senators or 85, that very clearly violates the, um, you know, the spirit of what's in the Constitution, the letter actually of what's in the Constitution. But uh, concepts like freedom of speech, cruel and unusual punishment, and all sorts of other things that are in the Constitution, but which reasonable people can differ on. How do, how do you defend a, an originalist interpretation of something like Citizens United, or even the recent Supreme Court decision, 6-3 decision, in which the court ruled that uh, millionaires and billionaires that were funding their own campaign could have a fundraiser to reimburse themselves for limitless amounts of money, even though Congress specifically passed laws saying that it was capped at $250,000. At some point, doesn't originalism have to defer a little bit to the laws that people who are elected are making? Well, uh, a couple of things. The, kind of the, the neutral definition of originalism is, or the, the dominant strain of originalism now, um, is uh, looking at the public meaning of the text when it was enacted. So the original Constitution was enacted in 1789, the Bill of Rights two years later. The 14th Amendment, uh, what uh, gun rights, abortion rights, same-sex marriage, a lot of these big cultural war issues uh, are talked about. That, that's uh, uh, evaluating whether states and localities are infringing on individual constitutional rights. That was ratified in 1868. So what is due process, equal protection, these sorts of terms mean uh, when ratified. And you raised uh, perfectly uh, good points about uh, what about these, there's a difference between saying the president has to be 35 years of age and uh, no unreasonable searches and seizures. What does unreasonable mean? Or what is a prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment? Well, you look at what punishments in 1798, uh, 1789, were both cruel and unusual, um, what were considered that uh, uh, at the time, or what is considered to be 
unreasonable using evidence from the Federalist Papers, or if you're talking about the 14th Amendment, the debates in the 39th Congress in 1867-68 about the meaning of natural rights, the meaning of uh, what exactly these provisions were, were doing to try to understand the meaning of that text. It's not about what did James Madison think about violent video games. They're not trying to posit that kind of question, nor is it trying to figure out some mythical intent. How would the founders have, what, what would they have intended uh, about campaign finance regulation? No, it's the words on the page. And if it's ambiguous, again, trying to figure out uh, the spirit of that, uh, of, of that provision using, again, those original uh, uh, functions. Uh, uh, and that's why we pay judges a big buck, because it's not a mathematical equation, and you can, you, originalists can disagree on, on those kinds of points. Now, briefly, on your, your, your point that you've uh, raised a couple of times about deference, uh, I don't think judges owe any deference to legislatures. Uh, they need to evaluate the Constitution, because uh, judici- the judiciary is a check on uh, runaway majoritarianism. That is, you don't need a constitution to protect popular speech or programs that are, that are popular. You need it to protect against violations of individual rights or things that are, that are unpopular um, that majorities might try to uh, impose or, or violate against the rights of minorities or, or individuals. And so in the campaign finance context, what the court's trying to do is understand when can freedom of speech be restricted and what, what is corruption, uh, what's quid pro quo corruption, all of these complicated areas or justifications uh, that governments put up for uh, restricting how you can spend, how you can amplify a message in the political arena. So it's not about deferring to the legislatures, whether you're talking about speech, guns, abortion, any place where this is regulated, but understanding the nature of the right and whether the government is justified in a particular case in in violating that right. Well, I I think that we definitely are going to have to have you back for a longer discussion on uh, judicial review and the Supreme Court's use of judicial review in general. But while I have you here, I can't avoid asking you about this uh, Supreme Court decision last week in which uh, on last Monday, the court released an opinion where they essentially said in um, Dobbs versus uh, Jackson Women's Health Organization that, uh, oh no, excuse me, uh, I mis- misstated, the, in um, in Shin versus Mar- Martinez Ramirez, that um, the, at least the, I haven't read the opinion, but the media reports are that um, ineffective counsel to somebody that is sentenced to death is no longer going to be an appropriate means of getting them out of that death sentence. Have you had an opportunity to read the opinion and what did you think of it? I skim the opinion. I, I at least skim uh, every opinion that, that comes out. Some of them, you know, the more technical bankruptcy sure. ones, I don't understand as, as much. <laughs> but the, this uh, criminal procedure, very technical case. I'm certainly not an expert in it, and I'm, I'm not going to uh, opine here on the fly on, on who got it right. It, it was a six to three decision. One of the rare ones where it's actually rare for all of the Republican justices, uh, appointed justices, to be aligned against all of the Democratic appointed justices only happened, I think, half a dozen times last year. Um, but, you know, I, yeah, I, I can't say, I can't speak to it right now. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, I do hope we can do this again. Uh, wishing you the best at Georgetown, and please keep us posted on that. 
sure. I, I'd love to come back. Uh, if and when I'm, I'm, I'm fully uh, reinstated, I'm, I'm raring to go to expand our programming, as is my charge uh, for judges, for practitioners, uh, in addition to scholars and, and, and students. Ilya Shapiro, executive director and senior lecturer at the Georgetown University Center for the Constitution and the author of the book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. If you want to wait till the paperback, it's coming out in July. Uh, If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 